Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm the director of the Strauss Center. And on behalf of my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Will Inboden, director of the Clement Center, on behalf of our friends at INSA, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, and with thanks to our corporate sponsor, Raytheon, I'd like to welcome you all to the concluding keynote address of our conference. For those of you who've been with us throughout, I, I appreciate the way you've uh, asked such great questions and been active participants, and I hope you'll continue to do that in what is to follow. Now, before I, I give the introduction that I am about to give, I, I want to acknowledge um, some other supporters and, and friends that are in the room. We are especially pleased today to welcome Regent Payevich, Admiral and Mrs. McRaven, and Mrs. McCall. We're, you're all special friends, and we're glad for your presence today. From Austin to Houston, from Bastrop to Brenham, the 10th District spans dynamic Texas cities, classic Texas towns, and beautiful, often rolling green Texas countryside. And whether you're looking for barbecue or bluebell, you'll find it in the 10th District. It's a very special place. It's also got a special representative. Michael McCall has deep Texas roots, fourth generation, born in Dallas, uh, went to school, undergraduate, Trinity, uh, very near where I grew up in San Antonio. Law school at St. Mary's, also in my hometown. From there, his career just rocketed forward. It's amazing the things that he's done. He's fought public corruption as a prosecutor at the Justice Department. He has fought terrorism as the Chief of Counterterrorism and National Security for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Western District of Texas, a position which also made him the leader of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the JTTF in that region. He served the state as a Deputy Attorney General. And then representing the 10th District, he has done so much more than that. Most famously, of course, he is chair of the House Homeland Security Committee, which among other things, he uh, puts him in a position to oversee the Department of Homeland Security, a, a department which is, of course, uh, perhaps more than any other in, in need of the attentions that a, that a motivated and substantively informed congressman can give. Uh, in addition to spurring DHS on to better and more efficient public service, of course, the Homeland Security Committee puts its chairman in a position to focus on the threat of terrorism to the homeland, challenges like cybersecurity, border control dilemmas, and other emerging homeland threats, including what we've seen over the past week with Ebola. Apart from the Homeland Security Committee, Chairman McCall also serves on the Science and Technology Committee, which is the perfect perch for a representative of a district that encompasses multiple wellsprings of technological entrepreneurship and innovation, as the 10th does. And of course, this also helps explain his role in creating and co-chairing both the High Tech Caucus and the Cybersecurity Caucus in Congress. Uh, it, it's hard to think of a more Austin-type theme to a, a congressman's areas of interest. Uh, but it's not just that, it's also his role in serving as the vice chair of the U.S.-Mexico Interparliamentary Working Group for, for nearly a decade now. He is, in short, in the thick of many of the most pressing issues of the day, and especially those that are of particular interest to Texas, to INSA, to the Clement Center, and to the Strauss Center. So on behalf of the Strauss Center, the Clement Center, and INSA, I'm very proud and happy to welcome today Chairman Mike McCall. Thank you, Bobby. That was probably one of the best descriptions of my district that I've ever heard, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, as Bobby mentioned, um, my wife uh, Linda's here. We, um, I'm also proud to be a father of five children, um, teenage daughters and triplets that just turned 13. So I have my own Homeland Security issues on their own. <laughs> When I first uh, got elected chairman, you get elected, I went to New York and, you know, I uh, visited with then Ray Kelly, the police commissioner, and uh, Mayor Bloomberg, <clears throat> who was mayor at that time. And, um, you know, I said, look, I, I know I'm from Texas and I get that, but I, I understand that New York is still the number one target of Al-Qaeda. And so the mayor, with his quick wit, says, well, tell me about your kids. And so I said, well, I have teenage daughters and triplets, and usually they focus on the triplets. Uh, he's... He focused on my teenage daughters. He says, teenage daughters? 
He said, uh, I've got a couple of those. He said, do you know the difference between a teenage daughter and a terrorist? I said, no, sir. He said, you can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> so we have, uh, we have homecoming tonight at Westlake High School. So for those parents uh, who live in Austin with teenage daughters, you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, I do want to thank um, uh, everyone involved in this conference. What an honor to be here with such uh, talented list of speakers. I want to thank uh, the Clement Center, Strauss Center, the Intelligence National Security Alliance, Raytheon, and I'm really honored to be uh, the closed keynote <clears throat> speaker. But let me just also <clears throat> say I'm particularly honored to be in the presence uh, with an individual I got to speak with earlier uh, here today of what I consider to be a true American uh, hero, and that's Admiral McRaven. Uh, who, as we all know, led the Navy SEAL raid in Pakistan that brought down America's number one high-value target, uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, I want to thank you, sir, for everything you've done for this great country. And just for the record, sir, I do make up my bed every morning. My wife uh, probably doesn't agree with that uh, point, but uh, I'm sticking to my story on that. Um, I know you've had a great conversation about counterterrorism efforts in the post-9-11 world, and it really couldn't come at a more appropriate uh, and important time. Um, this speech I want to give, I normally don't give by text, but I want to make sure I include everything, and, and it's going to be a little provocative, but at university, that's what I think it's all about, is being provocative and, and um, being a learning institution. Um, Ronald Reagan, who was the first president I had the honor to vote for, uh, said that we maintain peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Uh, America has invited aggression, in my judgment, by stepping back from the world stage. A lack of leadership has fueled the rise of extremists and the creation of terrorist safe havens. This was not inevitable. Today, I want to discuss how we got to this point and how America can prevail in the struggle against extremists. First, reluctance to lead in a false narrative about the threat have, in my judgment, put America in greater danger. Second, we must take the fight to the enemy so we don't have to fight them here at home. Finally, to defeat violent Islamist extremism in the long run, we must realize this is a global ideological struggle and not just a kinetic one. First, I believe that leading from behind has led us into danger, and a false narrative about extremist threats has allowed terrorist groups to surge. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel just recently said, the world is exploding all over. He's right. The chaos has a cause. World order deteriorates without clear leadership. For a century, the United States has been the indispensable nation underwriting global security. A lack of leadership creates a vacuum which is filled by dictators and extremist groups. We saw this happen in other periods of retrenchment in our history before World War I, World War II, and in periods during the Cold War when America failed to exert leadership. <clears throat> We've learned this lesson, again, the hard way. American leadership, in my judgment again, has waned in the past six years. And our adversaries have been able to expand their influence. I had the fortunate uh, meeting uh, to have with Condoleezza Rice uh, more recently at Stanford. And she told me, you know, she said, Mr. Chairman, we can't expect every country uh, to like us. Uh, but we can be either respected or feared. I would argue that today we are not, have neither. In fact, in recent years, we've been appeasing rather than opposing our adversaries. For example, this administration sought to reset relations with Russia despite its invasion of Georgia, began high-level engagement with Iran despite its support of terrorism, nuclear ambitions, and ruthless crackdown of its own people, restored our ambassador to Syria despite the regime's illicit nuclear weapons program and sponsorship of terrorism, hosted China for a first-ever full state visit despite its support from North Korea and bullying U.S. allies of Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea. These regimes have interpreted U.S. reproachment as weakness and have largely ignored America's demands 
warnings, threats, and red lines. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Iran has defiantly continued its nuclear research in support of terrorism. Syria has used chemical weapons against its own people. And China has become more belligerent, more bold-faced in its military buildup, and more brazen in its cyber attacks. The most damaging leadership failure, however, has been the false narrative about the danger from violent Islamist extremism. The White House downplayed this threat and the nature of America's response. The administration sought to return to a pre-9-11 law enforcement approach to counterterrorism rather than a wartime footing. Concepts, concepts like the war on terror have been replaced by obscure terms like overseas contingency operations. From an early stage, the White House avoided painting the fight against violent Islamist extremism as global ideological struggle. The administration argued we are fighting a specific core Al-Qaeda and that we've been winning. The president proclaimed that Al-Qaeda was on its heels and on the path to defeat and had been decimated. And there's been an unwillingness to call the threat what it is. For instance, Fort Hood terrorist Nadal Hassan murdered 13 people at a military base. I was there at, at, the, um, at the, um, the ceremony with the, the combat boots and the rifles and the, and the helmets that we all know so well. But in that case, even though the wounded soldier I talked to told me that Nadal Hassan said he proclaimed Allahu Akbar before he shot him, that has been labeled as a case of workplace violence, despite Mr. Hassan's Al-Qaeda connections. Similarly, the administration was reluctant to characterize the attacks on the U.S. diplomatic compound in Benghazi and at the Boston Marathon for what they were, acts of Islamist terrorism. Downplaying this threat of violent Islamist extremism has allowed it to morph, mature, and metastasize. This is consistent with my own briefings, which have indicated that Al-Qaeda has multiplied into a spider web and has spread like wildfire across northern Africa and the Middle East. A recent RAND study found that between 2010 and 2013, there was a 58% increase in jihadist terror groups worldwide. These groups are becoming increasingly sophisticated. They're no, they no longer need to shuttle messages between couriers and caves. Instead, they use secure online communications and other methods to evade detection, recruit, and plot attacks. Make no mistake, we've made an extraordinary uh, stride since 9-11 that I believe the Admiral has, has discussed, and most significantly, as I mentioned. Thanks to Admiral McRaven, our Navy SEALs, and our intelligence professionals, we took out America's number one high-valued target. And our law enforcement and intelligence agencies collaborate more closely than ever, as you all have discussed at this conference. In fact, I would argue a 9-11 style attack, it will be far more difficult to pull off today than on 9-11. But the extremists are adapting. And in the near term, they are focused on conducting small-scale attacks to keep the Western world on edge. In the medium and long term, though, they are still hell-bent on conducting so-called spectacular attacks against us, as we have seen with the plotting of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP, the premier al-Qaeda bomb makers, and their dangerous alliance that we've all heard about now with the Corazon Group uh, that was a highly classified um, uh, operation until recently. Corazon Group, a shadowy Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria who are still obsessed with attacking our aviation sector. These extremist groups have surged thanks to new safe havens. The 9-11 Commission's number one recommendation was to use every element of national power to root out terrorist sanctuaries. But absence of American leadership has allowed three new ones to emerge in Iraq, Syria and Libya. In Iraq, the administration disengaged. The president put an end to his predecessor's weekly calls with Prime Minister Maliki and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton visited the country only once. Ultimately, the president withdrew U.S. troops, failing to secure a status of forces agreement with Baghdad. 
His former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, said the White House rejected his advice to keep a residual force in the country because, according to Panetta, they were so eager to rid itself of Iraq rather than prevent extremists from filling the vacuum which they now have. In Syria, the president rejected calls to arm moderate opposition groups, which could have prevented ISIS from gaining a serious foothold in the country, which they now have. And in Libya, the Washington Post recently lamented the administration's virtual abandonment of the country and that that has risked allowing anti-Western groups to use it as a terrorist sanctuary, which they now have. The administration has been slow to recognize this threat because, in my view, it defies the narrative. Ironically, just weeks after al-Baghdadi announced the formation of ISIS last year, the president announced that the global war on terrorism was effectively over. We've now been forced to undertake a serious and costly reversal of that claim. The rise of ISIS should have come as no surprise. It certainly was not to me. It was not underestimated by the intelligence community. Post 9-11 reforms, like the creation of the Director of National Intelligence, National Counterterrorism Center, have allowed us to identify and track these threats earlier and more comprehensively. These reforms are part of the reason top defense and intelligence officials were able to accurately forecast the current threat over a year ago. Last winter, Homeland Security Jay Johnson, Secretary, even said that the extremists and foreign fighters presented the single biggest threat to our nation and the homeland. Yet the president was referring to them at the same time as a JV team of terrorism. Many former top administration officials have been critical of the slow response, including Leon Panetta, Bob Gates, Hillary Clinton, David Petraeus, and even Jimmy Carter has lamented U.S. inaction. In fact, the Pentagon consistently warned the administration about this threat over the last year. General Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, also made clear that we could not defeat ISIS unless we attacked them in Syria. There is an important lesson here, that even if the intelligence community and our defense leaders get it right, that our political leaders must be willing to listen. They cannot skip their daily intelligence briefings and expect to make the best decisions. But in this case, warnings came even earlier than last year. In 2007, <clears throat> 2007, President Bush predicted that withdrawing forces from the Middle East too soon would be dangerous for Iraq, for the region, and for the United States. He went on further and made this prediction. It would mean surrendering the future of Iraq, Iraq to al-Qaeda. It would mean we, that we'd be risking mass killings on a horrific scale. It would mean we, we'd allow the terrorists to establish a safe haven in Iraq to replace the one they lost in Afghanistan. It would mean we'd be increasing the probability that American troops would have to return at some later date to confront an enemy that is even more dangerous. How prescient. President Bush was right, and these warnings now, I believe, have come to fruition. Now we face an enemy which boasts billions of dollars in cash reserves, territory to train and plot attacks, and an army of, of fighters, none that we've ever seen before, far surpassing what al-Qaeda in Afghanistan has ever had. And among these fighters are thousands of Westerners, including Europeans and Americans. These individuals pose a serious threat and are only a one-way flight from the United States. We cannot allow these threats to advance all the way to our doorstep. We must take the fight to the enemy overseas so we don't have to fight them here at home. But this will require us to be clear-eyed about the nature of the threat and be honest. You cannot defeat an enemy you are unwilling to define. We are at war with violent Islamist extremism, the perversion of a peaceful religion into a deeply insidious worldview. Our enemy is not a single group, but evolves through diffuse networks and thrives in lawless safe havens. 
dropping a wider war on terrorism and focusing only on specific groups leads us blind to new and emerging threats. We must not ignore history, which teaches us to listen to the words of our adversaries. For instance, we didn't take the words of Adolf Hitler seriously until the foot soldiers of the Third Reich marched across Europe. We didn't take the words of Vladimir Lenin seriously until communism sprouted across the globe. And unfortunately, this administration did not take the words of groups like ISIS seriously until they declared an Islamic State and began beheading innocent civilians. And why? Why, why did they not listen? Well, in my judgment, it's because ISIS defies the narrative and the legacy. Our nation is weary from a decade of war. There's no question about that. But nevertheless, we must demonstrate resolve through our words, our capabilities, and our actions to deny terrorists the sanctuary to conduct attacks against us and to threaten our international stability. Our own words are important. They can be used to deter our adversaries and to reassure our allies. And lately, we've done neither very well. We've publicly taken options off the table against extremists in Iraq and Syria, giving them an advantage. By declaring we will not put boots on the ground, we've telegraphed the limits of our resolve to ISIS fighters. Our capabilities also send a signal as well. The Pentagon faces defense cuts, which would roll back the United States military to pre-9-11 levels. We cannot expect our allies to increase their commitments while we decrease ours. Nor can we expect to deter and defeat our adversaries by drawing down our forces. But our actions will speak the loudest. We must clear out the terrorist sanctuary in Iraq and Syria, completely using whatever means necessary. So far, our air campaign has failed to blunt the momentum of these extremists. They have held their territory and seized new ground and have still been advancing. We need to recognize that airstrikes alone cannot defeat this enemy, nor can they obliterate its perverse ideology. Now is the time for bolder action, not just bolder rhetoric from Washington. While targeted airstrikes have had limited success, we do need ground forces in both Iraq and Syria. My father was a bombardier on a B-17 in the European theater. They led the bombing campaign in advance of the D-Day invasion. But it took forces on the ground to ultimately win that war. In the fight against ISIS, we need regional troops from neighboring countries like Turkey and Jordan, as well as Western-trained opposition fighters and a stronger Iraqi army. And we also cannot rule out altogether American forces if this strategy fails. We can start by embedding special operation forces with Iraqi units for training and targeting of airstrike purposes. We should keep more aggressive options on the table. Again, removing these options telegraphs weakness to our adversaries and limits our choices on the battlefield. The American people also, in my judgment, need to say, the President should work with the Congress to draft an authorization for the use of military force to ensure that he has the appropriate legal authorities to combat extremists. Until recently, the administration was asking Congress to revoke the 2003 AUMF for Iraq. Now is not the time to tie our own hands behind our back. We need to ensure the President has more, not fewer, authorities to combat this challenge. We must use all elements of national power, military, economic, and diplomatic to defeat these extremists. We must also prevent new safe havens from emerging, including addressing the impending catastrophe in Afghanistan. If we withdraw our forces as promised, the country where 9-11 was planned may once again become a safe haven for extremists. I am encouraged that the administration has signed a security pact with the Afghan government, but I'm worried it will leave far too few forces in the country to keep the radicals at bay. A timetable for withdrawal only signals our retreat and emboldens the enemy, who will factor it into their plans, wait for our exit, and seek once again to develop a sanctuary. 
In the long run, to defeat violent Islamist extremism, we must realize that this is a global ideological struggle and not just a connect one. We can destroy ISIS and roll back its territorial gains, but the ideological struggle has no borders. We are already waging in our own towns and cities this online ideology and propaganda. And the easy transmission of extremist propaganda online may be contributing to an uptick in what we call homegrown terrorism. Indeed, there have been more than 70 homegrown violent jihadist plots or attacks in the United States since 9-11. And more than two-thirds of them have been uncovered or have taken place in only the past five years. Many of the suspects were radicalized, at least in part, by online Islamist propaganda, including Tamerlan Tsarnaev and his brother, the Boston Marathon bombers. And I'm worried that we're not doing enough here at home to stop that radicalization from within. Despite releasing a strategy in 2011, the administration has designated no lead agency in charge of overseeing counter-radicalization programs. Many initiatives are largely unproven and have no clear ways of measuring their impact. And the administration has been unable to provide figures on how much money is being spent and how many people in the government are being devoted to these programs. We must do better. When I talk to the FBI director and the Secretary of Homeland Security, they see this homegrown violent extremist as a real threat to the homeland because it can happen anywhere, in the basement of any home, on the internet, when you look at the propaganda, particularly when you look at the on online propaganda from Inspire magazine, which inspired the Boston bombers, how to make a bomb in the kitchen of your mom. Ultimately, extremism will be defeated only if we confront its root cause, which is tyranny. Repressive societies are the wellspring of fanaticism. And groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they were not born in Western capitals. They were given life in societies where individual liberty is suppressed and citizens have no voice in their government or in their future. We must work with our allies and partners over the long run to open up these closed societies and limit the conditions which allow extremism to spread. Those conditions include power vacuums and ungoverned spaces where extremists find sanctuary. But rooting out extremism and its, cause, and its causes will require uh, U.S. leadership. The American presence who prevailed in the global ideological battles of the 20th century from Roosevelt to Reagan were not afraid to use U.S. influence to shape world events. They knew that America was a pillar of international order and should lead through a foreign policy focused on advancing freedom. We know from their example that to reverse a tide of violent Islamist extremism, America must step back into the breach. We must champion liberty as a great alternative to the hateful ideology of dictators and fanatics. And we must refuse to let extremists carve out sanctuaries where they spread their depraved worldview. This is the work of more than one generation. People always ask me, when will this be over? I don't think it will be over in my lifetime, but I certainly hope it will be over in my children's lifetime. But that does not dissuade us from doing what is right, to make sure our children and their children live in a freer and safer world. I remain optimistic about the United States. I believe the United States will rise to the occasion that we can renew our efforts to defeat these ideologues before they exact a heavier toll on our humanity. But it is a moderate Muslim who must defeat the radical Islamists. And in the final analysis, I believe our nation is on the right side of history. We will prevail because American was destined by virtue of its ideals to shape a balance of power that favors free nations like our own. Violent extremists may have fired the first shot in today's struggle, but with the defense of this great nation and the advancement of freedom as our guiding light, America will, will fire the last. Thank you so much for having me at this conference. It's been a real honor.
And uh, there are a number of students in the room who I would especially encourage to get involved as well. Uh, Lawrence Wright. Thank you. Uh, very interesting speech, Congressman. I appreciate it. I had two observations about things you might add to your analysis. One is that um, many of the problems we're dealing with right now are the result of our actions, especially the invasion of Iraq uh, in, a, in a region that we knew very little about. And, um, and unfortunately, it liberated Iran to become a far more consequential enemy for our purposes. Um, and a lot of the violent extremism and radicalism and the undermining of America's prestige in that part of the world came as a result of that. And I think we have to be very aware of our, you know, the effect of our own actions. The other is there's two halves of Islam, the Sunnis and the Shia, and then the, the 1.5 billion Muslims in the world are very diverse. But there's one thing that all of these groups the al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, the Taliban, Boko Haram, one thing they have in common, they're all Salafi manifestations. And there's a wellspring for this kind of ideology, and it comes out of Saudi Arabia. And it's oversupplied with uh, money, um, hugely fueled by Saudi charities. And, uh, and that kind of, as long as that kind of propaganda is spewed into the Muslim world, we're always going to be dealing with these proxy militias that, that we deal with now. And until you cut that off somehow, I think we're only temporizing. Yeah, that's great, great points. Just for the benefit of the audience, Larry and I uh, are very uh, good friends and we've collaborated. Uh, he, he writes a lot for the New Yorker and, uh, magazine and wrote The Looming Tower, which is a definitive piece on 9-11. Uh, winning the Pulitzer Prize, and we're proud to be, to be a local Austinite, and I'm proud to call you my friend. Um, and your officer, I mean, look, I, I don't want to relitigate the merits of Iraq. Um, I was elected after the Iraq invasion, you know, occurred, and in my judgment, we had to to win that and leave it in stability, which unfortunately we did not. Which was a, the point. I, I always thought we ought to be focused on where 9/11 came from. That was Al Qaeda and and Iraq um, in uh, Afghanistan. Um, where bin Laden was hiding uh, and carried his plotting out. Uh, that's where core al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, Pakistan really resided. Um, I do agree with your thesis that ultimately, and that's why it was important, I actually inserted that on the car ride to the here, was that ultimately it's going to be the moderate Muslim that has to defeat the radical Islamist. Um, and, and in a lot of respects, it's, it's their fight. I mean, it's on Turkey's uh, front doorstep right now. Uh, when I went over to Saudi last April, I mean, they are literally, we met the crown prince, they're terrified that these ISIS fighters will come back and throw them out and the Wahhabis take over uh, Saudi. I think the current strategy is gonna be a very interesting textbook case for the war college because what it's doing is taking the moderate Sunni and training them in Saudi camps. My only concern is at 5,000 a year, that's not the pace we need to keep up with 50,000 ISIS. But I do think it's interesting, the idea of training and vetting uh, the Sunni moderate to fight against the Sunni extremist. Because it, 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 they, have to, they have a stake in this. And the, the imams need to step up and say, this is a perversion of our faith. This is a, a radicalization of our faith that we denounce. And only through that change in ideology will we ultimately, the struggle be over. Again, as I said, drone strikes alone are not going to win this. They, they're valuable in hitting high-value targets, but the ideology itself can sometimes backfire in, in terms of what we see as the blowback factor. I think you know, the great Satan being over there actually inflames this sometimes. And, um, and to, to end on the, uh, the financing piece to this, and you and I have talked about Saudi and pre-9-11 and what they were doing. Um, there is um, a financing piece to this that is concerning, uh, particularly as they were funding the rebel forces not being discriminate about where the money was going towards, indirectly did fund groups like Al-Nusra and ISIS, which started to hijack the rebel forces. And then ultimately, it's interesting, the Saudis and UAE went to Qatar, went to Kuwait and the Qataris and said, you got to stop doing this. 
I mean, Saudi finally realized the, the blowback potential, and so did UAE, and they pulled their ambassador out of um, out of Qatar and out of Kuwait until they stopped indiscriminately throwing money into Syria, which was going directly to ISIS. You would, you can argue in a way that that financially contributed to ISIS, in addition to what I consider to be failed uh, foreign policies, and Maliki's inability to reconcile the Sunni tribes. That combined was a perfect storm that imploded Iraq and gave way to ISIS and, and then our neglect of not paying attention to it as well. Uh, so it's a very complex issue. Um, we, as I mentioned, we're not going to win this with kinetic forces alone. Um, and I do think they need to step up to the fight. When I met with the Prince of Jordan, he said, we'll put in troops tomorrow. Now the question is, Admiral, how sophisticated is Jordan to, to pull this off? Now Turkey, on the other hand, is. But the Tur Turks don't like the Kurds. That, presents, that makes them an ally almost with the Kurds. So that becomes a problem as well. So, uh, and then from an ideological standpoint, it's, it's hugely complicated. Uh, it's very, very complicated. And we always have to be careful when we do get in situations uh, of what the unintended consequences can be. Um, and that's why I think shrinking from this responsibility rather than leading the world in this is the wrong way to go. And I think the diplomatic political side of this is, is huge, hugely important uh, as well. Thank you. Sir, my name is Francis Ambrosio. I'm a cadet in my fourth year at West Point. Uh, my question is, as a congressman, what criteria would you look for for putting American land power to go combat ISIS? And then once you have a, if you were to develop a plan to do that, how would you go about paying for it? That's, that's a great question. Um, so the question was, at what point would you commit uh, U.S. combat? I, like I said in my remarks, I would not take that option off the, you never take options off the table because you're just telling the enemy what you're not going to do. And that's not real smart. I, that may have been a way to appease some political groups in the United States. I'm sure that's why that was said. But um, I hope we don't have to do that. I don't want to put American men and women in the middle of Sunni moderates and Sunni extremists fighting each other. Um, I think it's a last resort, but it needs to be an option on the table. We're going we're to see if the strategy at the Pentagon is set forward to train and vet moderate Syrians to fight the extremists see if that can work. But the problem is right now the ground force is inadequate. And that's why you've seen ISIS, even though we've had uh, tremendous, we're great at air power, done a fantastic job. It's just the advances, uh, they're still advancing. And they've taken over this you know, border town with Turkey and they're still advancing to Baghdad. So um, it's had limited effect and ultimately you do need that ground force. So we're hoping that the strategy of training the, the moderate Sunni against extremists Works, but if it doesn't, I, I you know, as I, it as a last resort, we cannot allow ISIS to <clears throat> to exist and prevail and flourish, and and then conduct external operations against the United States in the homeland, and that's you know my job. And I want to make make sure that doesn't happen. Um, the cost, uh, you can't. <laughs> it's just like when I talk about securing the border, you can't get something for nothing. Um, that's a broader budgetary um, argument we're having in Washington about the overall budget. We only, uh, you may have heard from prior speakers, maybe Mac Thornberry, about the budget. That two thirds of it's going towards entitlements and only a third towards national security purposes, including the number one priority under the Constitution is providing for a common defense. It seems to me that that's a dangerous step and slope we're going down the more that one third gets shrunk, sequestration shrinks it. The Navy tells me they got to pull out of interdiction in Latin America because they can't afford it. Um, we're going to have to reform long-term entitlements to save them, but also to save the nation from national security. Because if we do nothing, they will shrink up the entire budget and our national security capabilities will be woefully inadequate and I would argue weakened to the extent that uh, we're not doing our jobs as provided under the Constitution. We will hand to the next generation of Americans a more dangerous, weaker world than, than what was handed down to, to mine. Yep. Oh, sorry. Um, I wasn't supposed to call. I was supposed to allow you to do that, right? I didn't want to cut the nets off. Thank you, sir. Uh, thanks. 
Um, sir, I'm Cadet Megan McNulty, and I'm also um, attending West Point. Uh, my question kind of goes back to your, um, your look at the leadership or the lack thereof in the administration. And over this conference, we've been talking a lot about um, getting the, the citizens and the population of this country behind um, like the push for better intelligence and potentially now behind our need for, or the need for American leadership in the globe, especially now with what's going on. And I'm, I'm kind of afraid that the norm now is, is following the leadership and we don't, most people don't want to um, kind of push our influence to bring more freedom. We don't want to take that risk. And we've all, the, the cadets here and the men and women who are in the service, I mean, we've made that commitment, but how do we get the rest of the population on board um, with that push for leadership in the world and in the following administrations? Well, what I thought was an interesting, um, you know, the, I, I saw uh, the American people going down a path of isolationism, even within my party. I mean, there was a lot of talk about um, retreating isolationists. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we don't have to be the world leader anymore. And the appearance of ISIS on the stage has been very interesting uh, because it's, it's completely changed that, that dialogue that the American people are having. And in fact, you know, as I mentioned in my remarks, you know, there was a, to me, it seemed like behind the scenes a battle going on between the, the Pentagon and the administration over how to handle uh, ISIS. And I think, you know, insiders of all, you know, Panetta's come out and other officials, and you have some sense for that, uh, that uh, sort of argument within the administration over what to do. And it wasn't until the American beheadings occurred that I think the American people saw ISIS for what I saw them over a year ago in my briefings, and that is pure evil in their tactics, beheadings and crucifixions and, th and things like that, that the American polling changed to 65, 70%, including going into Syria, which I, I, it wasn't until then that I think the president finally came around to the idea that, okay, I guess I can, I can do this now and it's politically okay to do it, but that's not really leading, that's letting the nation lead you rather than you leading the nation uh, by polling. And we've been urging the administration to take action. What we saw is a growing gathering storm uh, that quite honestly was created by a failure to negotiate a status of forces and the total neglect of Maliki and his politics. And so I was going on one of the Sunday shows and, and I, this and Iraq's imploding and these gold star mothers are asking me, question I get, sirs, was, was it worth it? My son died in Fallujah and was it worth it? And so I, could, I talked to Ambassador Crocker, who was over in Iraq and Afghanistan. I traveled there many times to ask him. He was there for 10 years. And you can imagine the frustration on people like his part, Condoleezza Rice, who they made great gains, left it stable, and then saw it all unravel. And they're very frustrated. Um, and I said, how did this happen? And, and he was very blunt. He said two reasons. One was political diplomatic. We allowed it to unravel. Maliki uh, couldn't govern. He alienated the Sunnis. He purged them. They'd rather fight with ISIS against Maliki than be a, an Iraqi person. And then, again, the failure to negotiate this uh, status of forces. You know, we have, tr we have troops residually in Ger Germany, Japan, South Korea, you know, and yet in one of the biggest hotspots where we needed that stability, we failed to achieve that. And, and that was a... That was the combination, the cocktail that created this whole mess, and it's very unfortunate. Now we have to pick up the pieces, and it's going to be it's going to be a hard couple of years uh, to get it stable. I think we will, you know, but it's it's going to be a, a rocky road. I don't know if that answered your whole question, uh, but I do think there is a with ISIS, people realize that it's not all hunky dory in the world. That there are hot spots or our problems that we have to lead. If we don't lead, we're going to allow this to, to happen. I do think there's not a lot of, you know, Kylie Sarai said, don't think they're all going to be your friends. I think the president maybe thought that everybody's going to be his friend, a little bit naively, including Al-Qaeda. It didn't happen. And, and, and her advice to me was, you're not going to be liked by everybody, but you need to be respected or at least feared by, by these uh, uh, nations that mean to do us harm and again I would argue that we've shrunk from that and they don't why do you think Putin's going into Ukraine he knows he can get away with it 
you know, the Soviet Russian submarines that my wife used to track uh, when I first met her, they left the coast of the United States after the Cold War was over, and guess what? They're back. It's game on again. And this lack of leadership or being respected or feared creates a more dangerous world because it invites aggression worldwide, whether it be Putin in Russia or al-Qaeda or other forces. Uh, cyber attacks, we're hit, getting hit by China and Russia and Iran on a daily basis. Uh, and that's a whole, that we, Admiral Emin and I could probably talk to you about that for the next hour, but I know we don't have that kind of time. But thank you for that question. Uh, yes, thank you, Congressman. I'm a constituent, <coughs> excuse me, constituent of yours in South Austin. And I'd like an explanation that I have never heard yet from anybody in D.C. or points elsewhere about exactly why the United States decided to displace the Assad regime in Syria. If we're so concerned about liberty and freedom, uh, why was that regime and its response to the protesters of the Arab Spring so heinous that uh, we decided to, in effect, declare war against them? We certainly didn't do that to Bahrain, where they shot thousands of protesters. If we are so concerned about liberty, I must indeed uh, reiterate the point of Mr. Wright here, who uh, points out that uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the most odious dictatorships on this planet that executes people by beheading for sorcery. Please explain why we are <clears throat> at war in Syria today. Yeah. Well, First of all, I don't represent South Austin. <laughs> but having, having, having said that, um, <laughs> uh, that's a very multifaceted question. Why didn't we attack Assad two years ago? Two years ago, the, Syria, the moderate rebel forces were, I think, more reliable. Then over two years, they became more infiltrated by al-Nusra and al-Qaeda, which made it more dangerous. And so now we have to take them out free Syrian army or what's left of it uh, into Saudi Arabia to train them in camps. Saudi Arabia has always been a precarious ally. Uh, I will not uh, argue with you about that. Um, in fact, I would, you know, 16 of the hijackers were Saudis. Bin Laden was a Saudi. Uh, a lot of the funding, you know, we've seen come out of Saudi concerns me. After they got hit in Riyadh, they realized that these jihadists are actually a problem for them too. And they started to cooperate with us in terms of intelligence, in terms of detainees, and getting good intelligence to stop terrorist events from happening in the United States. I cannot stress the importance, as you know, part of this conference, talk about counterterrorism, uh, the importance of how many attacks we have stopped uh, that the American people do not know about, that the intelligence community uh, and our military stopped from happening and hitting our homeland we were able to prevent many of those attacks. It only takes one to make it happen, uh, but they've done a pretty darn good job in stopping uh, those types of attacks. But, you know, um, UAE, they fight alongside with our troops in Afghanistan. The Saudis are, you know, have been um, a strong ally. Uh, uh, but, you know, again, it's precarious. You know, it's a very precarious relationship. And the Arab Spring, to your point, um, in some ways became a little bit of an Arab winter because um, it's taken the lid off a pot that's been oppressed for so long, and what comes out of it? Well, we saw the Muslim Brotherhood take over Egypt until the military came in. We saw Libya with Gaddafi, as bad as he was. He became an ally later. You know, like I said, we don't have a lot of friends, but you want them to respect or fear you. Libya now has completely fallen to the extremists. We had to pull our embassy out of there completely. Uh, and we have no presence uh, in Libya. And so when I met in Saudi with the crown prince, they are, this Arab Spring thing terrifies them because it is taking the lid off the pot, and they're worried about their own survival. And sometimes I wonder, we talk a lot about democracy in the Middle East. I think it's a little naive to think we can take a Jeffersonian democracy and put it in some of these Middle Eastern, in particularly Afghanistan, that is so primitive if you've been over there. Um, it's, it's going like going back 2,000 years in time. It's a little naive. I, what I want is just greater stability uh, in the Middle East and partners we can rely on 
in going against what is the real threat, and that's radical Islamists. Um, they're not nice people. They really hate us. They want to kill us. But that ideological struggle that we can prevail in working with the moderate Muslim is the, only, the best, most effective tool, I always say, against combating this radical ideology is through the moderate Muslim and their ideology to basically attack it from within their own. Right. The next, uh, next question is uh, right here. Uh, thank you for being here, Congressman. My name is Mark Jabelli, and uh, I'm an undergraduate fellow and midshipman in the Naval ROTC unit. Um, my question is, I was in third grade when 9-11 happened, and the war on terror has dominated my entire politically aware life. Um, yet we do see a lot of emerging threats that have come from our focus, I think, on combating terrorism and Islamic extremism. Uh, should we not at some point say the Middle East is too expensive to fix but too important to ignore and simply manage it and seek to lead in other places and specifically move our national dialogue forward to leadership in the Asia-Pacific region, perhaps securing Europe and other sorts of other areas that we feel may be undermining the system we set up in the post-Cold War world? Well, when I look at counterterrorism, this is an excellent question. I, going back to your question, sir, I mean, I, I think that uh, what we want are stable governments and stability. We don't want um, safe havens and vacuums from which these terrorists can thrive and breed and then conduct external operations. And I can't go into a great deal about the Corazon group that's come out recently, but that was probably one of the top priorities in terms of what we were looking at as one of the biggest threats to the homeland as they conspire with Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, the premier bomb makers, too, take bombs on airplanes, and they're still intent on doing this. And they've manufactured some devices we were concerned about getting past screening, which is why 25 overseas airports now have heightened their screening so they can't get these bombs on airplanes, and then their intent is to blow them up over the United States. They probably can't hijack a plane with our security today, but they, they are very close to developing a bomb that they could possibly get through and get on an airplane and then blow it up over JFK over New York. That's a real scenario that we want to try to prevent. So um, again, I think we need to isolate who the threat is and not occupy countries. I don't think, I think the war college is, an, you know, the, the, I can only imagine post Iraq, Afghanistan, the, the, there's no shortage of material to study uh, in terms of case studies. And even Kylie Rice said, you know, we didn't probably manage the aftermath of Iraq as well as we should have just being very candid about it. And so I, I don't think occupying countries is necessarily where we want to be, but I think it's always targeting the radical Islamist that does want to hurt us in the homeland still. Um, and having stable governments that we can work with uh, in that region. I would, not, I would not argue completely withdrawing from our relations with the Middle East. Certainly political and diplomatic are very important. That's why I pointed out in my speech and I'm, this, I'm not trying to be political, but when I visit with Condi Rice, you know how many times my predecessor visited Iraq? One time for three hours. That shows you the lack of commitment to keep that stable. And then, and then she said, we gave them, you know, the language of the Status of Forces Agreement that we negotiated. And, and, and as Leon Panetta said, they were so intent on pulling out that they failed to achieve that, which created the conditions. To answer your question, we do not want to create the conditions that can create a safe haven. You know, a va power vacuum where that's where they thrive. Uh, and the tentacles are all over the place, but that's what we want to prevent, that long-term will prevent, uh, will protect the safety of, of the American people. We've just about reached into the time, but I'll give Director Shedd the final question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for being here today. I couldn't be in this fine state of Texas without talking about Mexico. Um, I think Felipe Calderon, for six years, prioritized security over even economic reform, although still accomplishing a lot in economic reform. Enrique Peña Nieto has actually made economic reform his top priority and has done some, some great things in the petrochemical area and Pemex and so forth. 
as you look at Mexico and the role that the intelligence community plays and its relationship to national security, we look at indications and warning. And what I would say about Mexico and where it is on security today is um, challenging. But what I'd like to do is have you answer the question rather than give you an assessment of the intelligence community, at least in public, about um, where Mexico stands and its commitment on fighting the transnational organized crime organizations that, of course, as, as um, free-flowing organizations may, in fact, as we've seen in the, in the case of the Saudi ambassador's assassination plot, certainly one-offs from uh, one of those TCOs uh, could plan an assassination uh, plot easily using those types of connections because they are at best amoral and certainly mostly immoral in terms of their choices. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, as was mentioned in my introduction, I chair the U.S.-Mexico Interparliamentary Group, so I meet with their Congress once in Mexico, and then they, they're coming up to Washington in, in December, and uh, security dominates a lot of our discussion. But if I could just back up on the energy piece, I will say that the uh, Pemex reform um, is hugely significant to take it away from the people's oil. Now they're opening up 75% of their reserves to private exploration, which makes the United States a great partner with them, which will help their economy. Uh, and I think, you know, as their economy improves, so does ours. Uh, and it helps with the immigration problem as well. And I think Canada, you know, we, we're going to invite the Canadians because that Canada, United States, Mexico piece, an energy alliance, if you will, to get off the dependence of foreign oil, including the Middle Eastern. When I was in Saudi, we met with the Crown Prince, and I was reading my briefing documents, and this is the number one threat to the royal family. They were quoted as saying it's the Eagleford Shale. <laughs> <laughs> and Henry Cuellar, my colleague, didn't read the paper, and he boasted about how he has the Eagleford Shale in Laredo, Texas. <laughs> so they're with the end of my diplomatic mission with the, the Saudis. But, and then we, we did surpass them uh, near around July 4th, which is a huge marker. And I think the more we can partner with Mexico on this, energy exploration is, is just, to me, it's a win-win. It's a very, a very exciting time with energy, which I do equate to national security as well. Um, so that's very exciting. Um, on, on the um, cartel, narco trafficking, we do have some, you know, when I ask about, you know, sometimes my colleagues really irritate me. They say things on TV that's absolutely false. Ten ISIF member, members were spotted going across the southwest border. Absolutely false. Absolutely irresponsible. And when I, but when I do ask the question, do we have any, as you mentioned, the Saudi ambassador plot, there are the transnational organizations that do have ties to, whether it's Hezbollah, some to Al-Qaeda, that do work with some of the, you know, the um, cartels down there, more on a money-making side, a finance side, um, but if they have that relationship, could they go operational? That's the, the key issue from a, a terrorism standpoint. But the drug cartels themselves, as you know, are very, very lethal, um, toxic. My understanding with Nieto was he wanted to continue the efforts and that they apprehended the head of the Los Zetas um, and, of course, the Sinaloa, one of the ma biggest drug lord takedowns we've seen in quite some time, he didn't want his rhetoric to be all about cartels like his predecessor. Um, but then there was some doubt that he was really serious about his commitment against the cartels. On the intelligence sharing side, CSIN has always been probably our strongest partner in addition to the Mexican Marines. Uh, Marines more on an operational side, they help us take down Chapo Guzman. Um, and then from an intelligence side, CSIN has been very helpful. When you get beyond that, or the federal police, when you get beyond that construct, it gets very dicey and filled with corruption, particularly at the lo more local levels. And I don't, I don't know if you'll ever be able to, there's just too much money involved. Um, and this is a very, another complex issue that's going to be difficult to resolve. Um, I have heard that Pena Nieto now is starting to talk about security more and cracking down on, on, the, um, on these drug cartels, which you know, when I was talking about the, the border, I was asked, why is this so important? It's like, well, if you don't know what's coming in your country and what's not, you know, General Kelly, the head of Southcom, said if 60,000 kids can walk in, what else is coming through? You know, whether it's uh, 
drug cartels, drug, human trafficking, potential terrorism, health concerns coming across. It, it's all related to controlling what's coming in the United States. And certainly our borders are very important. What Homeland Security does primarily is restricting travel access, which why we're trying to identify the foreign fighters to keep them off airplanes, why we're trying to identify Corazon Group to keep them off the airplanes, why we're trying to track a boy, you know, victims so we can keep them off of airplanes as well. Um, the border, particularly land but and sea, uh, is still very open in some respects. It is much better fortified, but there are vulnerabilities that we still need to address. Um, and, and the cartel's ca uh, tactics, particularly Los Zetas, are very similar to what we see you know, with ISIS, too. And they're a very frightening group uh, that we want to keep outside this country. But I would argue that they've already, you know, when I talked to somebody, a congressman from Pennsylvania, why is this so important to me? Well, because they've already, they're here. I mean, they're in every major city. They have major operations, as you know. And with that comes the violence and the crime uh, with it. So I just want to thank everybody for having me here today. And it's been a real honor to speak in front of so many experts uh, in this field, in this business. Thank you.